Good morning, BC. Um, I'm sharing this morning from Romans chapter 8, and Crystal is going to read part of it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Uh, my, my uncle is an HLG grad from way back in the early 80s, Southern grad, and now he's a Presbyterian and Congregationalist 
minister in rural Iowa, and he told me one time he just got up on a Sunday morning and read the Sermon on the Mount and then sat back down. And after hearing Romans 8, I, I kind of feel like that a little bit, like, thank you for the sermon. That is, <laughs> that's beautiful. Um, there's part of me that's just tempted to say, let's read that about 15 times and go home. Uh, I'm really, really thankful to be here this morning. Uh, first thing I want to do is talk to the kids. Well, parents, before that, parents, feel free that the noises and wiggles are, are great with me, so don't, don't be... Uh, don't be upset if your kids are making noise. I love to hear it. So kids, to, to copy Dan, can you raise your hands, kids? Where are you at? Yeah. So each one of you has a name, right? Are any of you named after your grandma or your grandpa? Yeah? Tell me your name. There you go. After Grandpa, right? Anybody else named after a Grandma or Grandpa? Is that Philip? Philip, what's your name? Philip James, after your Grandpa? Yeah, uh, sometimes our parents give us names. Sorry, I'm going to stop there. Sometimes our parents give us names to, to honor somebody in the family, right? Or to admire somebody, to, to give honor to somebody that they respect. Maybe it's a grandma or a grandpa. Maybe it's a, an attribute or a, a person in history that they want you to have. Sometimes our parents, for me, my parents just like the, name, the sound of the name Brian. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything special to them. They just like the way it sounded. But there's this Hope, then, when you give a kid a name, no matter if it's just because you like the sound of it, that one day that, that name will mean something in the world, right? That maybe one day someone will love God, and when they hear the, the name Brian, they're reminded of God's love or the good news of Jesus. For us, we named one of our kids Emmanuel, which means God is with us or God with us. And so he hears that name in all these songs right now at Christmas time and he thinks everybody's singing about him. But we gave him that name actually for ourselves to remind us that God is always with us no matter where we go. God is always with us. So at Christmas, Emmanuel isn't just another name for Jesus. It's, a, it's an attribute that Jesus put on when he came down here. He decided to be God among his people. So think about that, guys. Whenever you think of your name and whenever you hear the word Emmanuel in Christmas songs this week. So um, th thanks for your patience. Even I put the wrong translation of uh, scripture on the screen. So ministry from weakness here this morning is on display. Um, I'm really excited to share from Romans 8. Uh, John Piper called Romans 8, the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite parts of the Bible. It sounds like kind of having a favorite kid, but um, for me, I know that, that that last part of Romans 8 has really been comforting to me during hard times in life. Uh, so this is a special passage. At the same time, uh, I think about what a, a theologian named Stephen Sykes said. He said, every time you do theology, you feel like you have to say everything 
every time or people are think you're, will think you're leaving something out on purpose. And, uh, and N.T. Wright, the historian, said, uh, when you're dealing with Romans 8, there's so many themes clustered in and clamoring for attention that it's physically impossible to talk about them all. And he said that right before he did eight lectures on Romans 8 that are an hour and a half each that I listened to almost all of them this week. Uh, I'm not going to do that. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that we miss, unfortunately, in Romans 8. But this is a rich, rich passage. Back in, I guess it was October, November, when Dan asked me if I wanted to to speak, I was eager to do it. Um, And ever since then, I've just tried to sit down in the morning and read Romans 8. And frankly, every time I've read it, it's felt like uh, drinking from a fire hydrant. That there's just too much, and it is just blasting me every time. That I even struggle sometimes to get a drink out of the fire hydrant because there's just so much going on, and it's kind of overwhelming. So um, now that I've lowered the bar, <laughs> what I want to talk about this morning is waiting, which I think really shows up in Romans 8. Uh, patience, and I know this has been the theme for Advent here at Believer's Church, is waiting. I want to talk about waiting together. So today I just want to be hopefully helpful to you guys, hopefully glorifying to Christ, and maybe contribute something that's at least interesting uh, in this incredible, rich passage. I'm I'm just so, so grateful to be here. Uh, God started us on a journey, Cassie and I, at BC. And I'm sure it's a journey that started a long time ago with loving parents who took us to church and prayed for us, but it feels in a lot of ways for us like it started here uh, in this gym and and in the buyer's living room where for the first time we were confronted with what's going on inside of our hearts. Why do you do what you do? Not just what you do. Um, this question that, that still gets me, how do you think God feels when he looks at you right now? What's the look on God's face when he looks at you right now? That th- this journey sent us deeper into the gospel, it sent us overseas, and, and I hope we never uh, get done with this journey until we die. So I am really, really thankful to be here, a church that is so special to us, that showed us that the gospel isn't just the door that you walk through to become a Christian, but the gospel is the path every day. That it's not about repenting once when I was eight years old and getting baptized, but it's about, do I believe today? Am I trusting in Jesus today? Can we pray just for a second before we jump in here to Romans 8? Father in heaven, um, Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us and for your love. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for this church. Help us to love one another. Please change us by your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the whole point of the book of Romans is is really to be in unity, to have one heart and mind as we are a worshiping community of Christ. And this starts in in Romans 1, if you want to write it down, Romans 1, 3, and 4. And and then Paul echoes it again at the end in in Romans 15, 7 to 13. What Paul is trying to do is write a letter to a church that's very diverse and encourage them to be of one heart and mind as they worship God. 
he gives a lot of theology of what is God and what is salvation, what's your situation in life, and how to worship God together as a community. Unity in the church around the gospel message. And to me, it's especially interesting because Paul wanted unity in the church in Rome. These Gentile converts to Christianity, these Jewish converts to Christianity, he wanted them to be unified because he wanted them to be his home base as a missionary so he could go to Spain and preach. So it's very special to me. I don't know if he ever went, but I know he wanted to go. One disadvantage for us in the year 2020 that we bring to Scripture, we bring to New Testament letters especially, one disadvantage that we have is that we read this book as post-enlightenment Western individualists. As uh, Daniel was alluding to, we, we walk in the door as 100 individuals with 100 different lives and, and weeks that we just lived. And, and the world that we grew up in for the past 300 years, really, we've been formed as people to think in terms of facts and logic and senses, what can be studied and tested and known, and, and to kind of focus on my individual experience and set aside the group or tradition what our forefathers did or believed, which would have really been the the context that these people were receiving this letter in. Not so much about their personal experience and their personal relationship with Jesus, but who are we as a family? Because to join the, the church in the first century would have been this radical rejection of, of all the, their forefathers and the traditions they received and say, you guys got to be that for me now. I lost my my heritage and nationality and, and complete identity, and it's wrapped up now in this church. So there's an urgency in the book of Romans to know what we're about together. So just to try to get our minds in that, in that frame of reference a little bit, if we could. Paul's writing to a church community who's trying to learn how to be a community. Can you relate to that? How to integrate all these different individual lives together around the themes of Christ. And so um, us, waiting together, not just waiting, not just you waiting and you waiting and you waiting, but us waiting together for Jesus. That's what I want to talk about this morning. And so I'm going to have six themes that I see in Scripture here. So when you know when I get to number six, we're almost done. The first one is um, community. Community. I remember uh, going back to my hometown. I hadn't been there in a long time, and I went back to the church where I grew up, First Baptist Cahoka. And uh, as far as the new pastor knew, um, I was just a guy who, who was from that town and, and was now overseas as a as a cross cultural worker and for whatever reason i don't he didn't he didn't catch the fact that i actually grew up in that church too my family didn't go there anymore and and he had never met me you know first baptist church there's a lot of turnover in pastors so um as he met me in his office and we had a coffee he wanted to show me the facility and so he's walking around the church and this is the basement and the the kitchen and the baptistry and and kind of taking me on a tour uh unaware that all those places really meant a lot to me and had a lot of uh, 
emotional, sentimental value. I, I could see the baptistry where I was baptized, and, and I thought of those tables that I sat around where the older men from church treated me like I belonged there, even, even as a teenager. In talking about Jesus and the, the things that we just heard in a sermon upstairs, <clears throat> and it made me moved with gratitude for this community that brought me to faith in the Lord. It wasn't a, a building that was just about me and my individual decisions to follow Jesus, but I thought of, I saw faces. Kenny and David and Steve, uh, Mary ordering pizza for us on Sunday night. I thought of the community that shepherded me, shepherded me to the Lord. Let's read uh, Romans again, 8 and verses 16 to 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The second thing I want to point out here is suffering. There's so much that could be said, but let's just acknowledge that according to the Bible, it's normal that Christians would suffer. If there's one thing that I could say to American Christians uh, about life, maybe even since uh, the last five, eight years, the world that we are living in is not normal. I, I search in vain in Scripture to try to find a kind of Christianity where we have power and influence and wealth, where life, where we can exert our will on life and society and get what we want. That does not seem to, to show up anywhere in Scripture. We see uh, promises of suffering and loss and death and being hated. We don't see comfort and riches and health. We are heirs with Christ, it says, provided that we suffer with him. And I am very uncomfortable with that sentence. <laughs> Anyone else? We are heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. But here they are. It's not that we go out looking for suffering and trying to make life hard for ourselves or trying to create enemies. But... I just want to say, I think there's something missing in our, in our formation and in our discipleship that we expect Christian life to be smooth. And, and we expect a Christianity without suffering. And I have to ask myself, even this week as I was writing, I thought, how is it that I have come to expect to be able to follow Jesus and not suffer? How have I formed a vision of the Christian life that lets me avoid the broken places of the world? The broken places in my community and in my world and even in my own heart. And I, th I think what Paul gets, and I'll get into this later, uh, he's, he's showing us that we as a Christian community are, are meant to bring God's order to earth God's reconciliation to earth. And when we do that, it comes at a cost. 
not that we have to go out and look for suffering, but as we are God's ministers on earth, there is pain and suffering. As N.T. Wright said, we go in prayer to the place of pain. He says that's the mission of Christians, to go in prayer to the place of pain. We've all, in some way or another, tasted suffering, haven't we? Some of us more than others. We've been broken, we have been lost, we have been afraid. And personally, I I am really grateful for a, a tradition we have in our mission agency uh, a saying that is starting to be pretty common. We say to one another this when somebody's struggling, God did not bring you into the wilderness to die. Like Israel in the Old Testament, it's easy to start to wonder, uh, God, are you still with me? <laughs> are, you st- are you paying attention? Do you see what I'm going through here? When we do suffer, Uh, it shocks us and surprises us, and we start to wonder if God still loves us. And I want to maybe, maybe this is all you guys are going to get out of this morning, but maybe add that to your toolbox of Christian fellowship. When one mom is struggling, and she just can't anymore with this kid and this exhaustion, just to look at her, give her a hug, and say, God did not bring you to the wilderness to abandon you. He is with you. Verse 18 says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I wish I had more time for this verse. It's, it's an incredible, incredible verse. And I feel, like I, I, I feel like I was in a Pentecostal church service this week as I listened to, to an old Anglican priest talk about the new creation and his understanding of what the new creation was going to be. I, I remember one time, Matt, years ago, you preached about kingdom. And, uh, and it was a sermon for me that was just like, there's this whole new category of the Bible that I had n- never thought of. Uh, I read it, but what is kingdom? What is God's kingdom coming on earth? And that's, that's the experience I had this week with uh, hearing this, this old guy talk about the new creation and the glory that is coming for us. Because I read the word glory and I, I really th- think of flash and um, light and something beautiful and, and perfect. Uh, maybe a sports car that's waxed. That's pretty glorious. You know? Uh, when Michael Jordan can take off from the foul line and dunk, there's some glory there. Just something that makes you go, wow. And so I thought, oh, this, this present suffering that we have and the hardships is not worth comparing to, you know, the, the clouds and the harps and the golden streets in heaven, right? It's a better reward is coming for us. And I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying there is a new earth, a new partnership with God, a new authority that's coming into our lives. Glory, for sure, it's, you know, Jesus being transfigured is glorious, and Paul on the Damascus Road and the bright light, there is, there is the brightness of glory. But actually, as I studied Scripture, and this is the third theme, the coming glory, glory is actually when you're put in charge of something in the Bible. 
when you have authority. James and John said to Jesus, uh, we have a, a slide here, Mark 10, verses 35 through 37. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said, what do you want? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, in your authority, in your responsibility, in your power. Give us some of that glory. Give us some of that power. What does Romans 3.23 say? It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that we did not measure up to the responsibility that we were supposed to carry out. We have lost the glory. But Romans 8, 18 says, it is coming back. There is a glory coming back for us. This, this is, has an echo of the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve had glory. They walked with, with God in the garden, and they fell short. They exchanged the Creator, a relationship with Him, for a created thing, like Romans 1 says. We're living in an in-between time right now. Uh, even as we're, we're getting ready to celebrate Jesus' birth, Jesus was the God-man. God who said, Dad, I'll put on a body and I'll go. I'll put on flesh and I'll go. This really starts the clock towards the real deal. The calendar starts really on, on Friday, on Christmas. And we look to the, the real thing, which is Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. That's our, that's our real holiday as Christians, Resurrection Sunday. But, but as the, the calendar is getting ready to start for us next week, we look back and celebrate the first time that God came. And at the same time, we look forward to his next advent, to the next time God comes. We're like, uh, like pregnant Elizabeth with John the Baptist. We're like pregnant Mary with Jesus inside, just waiting. There's a glory that is coming. And even if we're suffering now, it is coming. Uh, uh, Verse 19 of Romans 8 says, All creation waits with us. And this is an amazing thing for me to see that creation is eager. Even though we fell short and we, like our parents, have exchanged the, the glory of God for sin and for a lie, that the devil has been set loose here on earth because of our exchange, we chose to worship and serve creation rather than the Creator. And, and what this has done is broken not just us inside and, and make a, made us sinful people, but this has broken the whole world. And there's a lot of this here in, in Romans 8. How broken the world is. Not just people in my sinful nature, but roses have thorns now. You know, coyotes kill rabbits and deer because of sin. Tornadoes level our houses and our schools because of sin, because we have exchanged the creator for the creation. Uh, drought shrivels our crops and cracks the foundations of our homes. Floods come in and destroy businesses in downtown Hannibal because of sin, 
But the worst effect of sin, I don't think it is in creation, even though we see it around us. The, the worst effect is this broken relationship between us and God. In, in Genesis, we see God, it's almost as if he, he divorces humans when Adam and Eve choose to sin. They, they hide from him, and, and God says to them, you got to get out. We had this perfect relationship, but you got to get out. Like an unfaithful spouse who broke the covenant, humans are sent away from the presence of God. You can't live here anymore. He banished them from the only home they had ever known. And ever since that time, we've been separated from God. He shrouded himself in darkness and in clouds. There's a separation between God and man because of sin. But if Christmas says anything to us, it says God, God didn't just, just say, you're out. Christmas also says God wants a relationship with human beings. He wants contact with us. He wasn't content just to send Adam and Eve out. It's, he set in plan a motion to come back for his people and to make it right again. Even in our rebellion and destruction, God comes to us. That's what Christmas says, is that God comes to us. He came, and he continues to come, and he will come again. That's what we're waiting for. Christmas shows us, let me say this, Christmas shows you that God wants contact with you. He loves you. That's what Jesus in the manger says. God loves you. Even when you've rejected him, he loves you and he will come for you. God didn't step in right then. He, he could have said, okay, Adam and Eve messed it up. Let's kill them real quick. Make a couple more and start this thing again and see if they can hold it together. He, he let the plan st- start into motion. He cursed the ground. He, he kicked humans out. Disease, cancer, sin, abuse, injustice came into the world because we chose to exchange the truth about God for a lie, and it broke this world. So, verse 19, creation is longing. Verse 20 says, creation has been subjected to futility. It's hard to survive. God made a world that we were meant to run. He puts Adam and Eve in charge to be stewards, to take care of his creation, and, uh, and they messed it up. But as we come to Christ, he tells us to get to work taking care of this world. Um, <clears throat> so Adam and Eve sin, right? And, and they're cursed, and, and the world is cursed. Do you, does anybody know, as a good Bible major from HLG, the first promise of the Messiah in Scripture? You can shout it out if you want to. The first promise of the Messiah in Scripture. Everyone's on, spring, on Christmas break. Genesis 2? The, the classic answer would be Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3.14, that, that God will send uh, the seed of the woman to crush the serpent. And up until, honestly, yesterday, I would have said the same thing. Um, man, it's hard with, that, with the mask. I don't know if people are sm- smiling. Or, um, 
I think the first promise of the Messiah is this. In Genesis 1, 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Because Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God says, God the Holy Spirit and Son and Father say, let us make man in our image so that later God can come in the image of man and redeem man. So the first promise of Jesus isn't just that he will come and crush the serpent. The first promise of Jesus is God made us in his image so that God could come in our image and redeem us. That way God came, Jesus came in a way that it would have been inappropriate for him to come as a a squirrel or a mountain. He had to come as a man to redeem men. He didn't come as creation to redeem creation, right? He didn't come as a a thunderstorm to redeem thunderstorms. He came as a, a person to redeem people. That's why God made us in his image. Even in Genesis 1, as he's speaking the world into existence, Christmas is on his mind. We're not saved simply so that we can be with God forever in heaven, which is for some reason what I always thought growing up, that the goal of life is to get to heaven with God, to leave this earth. We're actually saved so that we can work together with God for the redemption of this world. We trust that God will work for good. That's verse 28 of Romans 8. And we need faith to look for that. But the goal is not to leave this world and go up to heaven. That's led to all kinds of neglect of our calling as stewards of this earth and stewards of our bodies. It's led to us thinking that we're just heads on a stick, right? The, the body's bad, the soul's good. We're, we're like Gnostics. Just saying, the physical stuff doesn't matter. This earth is all going to burn up one day. Who cares about it? I'm just throw my trash in the ditch. What really matters is whether or not I believe in Jesus. But the last scene in the Bible is actually heaven coming down to earth, not us going up to heaven. God is going to bring heaven down to earth. He's not going to destroy this whole earth and then speak a new one into existence. He's never speaking a world into existence again. Actually, what we have in Revelation is God takes the oldness and makes it into something new. This is the earth that we're going to live in. He's going to remake it, but we're going to be, we're here, guys. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4 is maybe one of my most favorite verses in the entire Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
Amen? The language there is that he's taking the oldness, the broken part, and making it right. The thing is rebuilt, but not created out of nothing. And every tear is wiped away. Like uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible says, one of my favorite books in the whole earth is that I can be reading that storybook Bible to my kids and cry. That all, everything bad will come untrue. Everything bad will come untrue. I heard a, a preacher say there's a girl, he knew of a little eight-year-old girl, and she called, she called the future the no-tears place. The no-tears place. And so she would talk to her parents and she'd say, Daddy, when the no-tears place comes, will we have a, our dog? When the no-tears place comes, will Grandma be there? I remember... Um, in 2013, we were uh, out at the Quality Inn, getting ready to, to drive down to St. Louis the next morning and fly back to Spain. And um, and Cassie started to to bleed, and um, we had to go to the emergency room, and and uh, we had lost our baby. And I, I texted some of the guys, I t- and I remember Dan texting me back. Yeah, I wish I would have saved it. Um, but the main thing I remember that he said is, one day this is never going to happen again. I'll never forget it. I don't know the, word, the exact words, but that I, I'm so sorry, I love you, and one day this stuff will never happen again. And th- that was ah, so helpful to me to think like that. Verse 22 and 23 in Romans 8 say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What strikes me here is that the world is redeemed through pain. Suffering and pain show up a lot in this passage. It's easy for me to to just gloss over them. The Christian life is really about going to pain, to brokenness, to need in prayer with the good news of Jesus. The Lord summed it up for us like this. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And my friend Matt says it like this. I want you to have groceries on your table as much as I want to have groceries on my table. That's what loving your neighbor means. And Jesus told us that your neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan is the the person that you see who's in need, that you can do something about. If you're aware of it and you can do something, you're the neighbor. So we move to the brokenness, to the groaning. But we don't just go out with the gospel, we also go in with the gospel. Martin Luther said, Uh, Christianity is about a continual repentance, not just once, but daily, continually. So we go to the the broken places out there because we see injustice and pain and suffering and death, but we also go in because we see the brokenness that's inside of us. And sometimes I groan, God, how can I still be this selfish? How can I get angry so easily at the people I say I love the most? How am I capable of that? 
Do you guys ever feel that way? You know yourself so well, and it almost brings shame to know the sin you're still capable of in private, right? So we groan, Jesus, come. Make this world what it should be. Make me what I should be. Fourth thing, verse 25 says, we are waiting with patience. The image here is a pregnancy and birth. I have never been pregnant, um, but Cassie has seven times. I've been with her on that journey, and I know that uh, childbirth is uh, frankly terrifying. Amen? I remember Cassie during one of the most difficult deliveries, uh, sorry, babe, uh, saying, I can't do this. I can't do this because of the pain and overwhelm she was feeling. And the nurse looked back at her and said, yes, you can, and you have to. There's no other option at that point. I'm just over in the corner trying not to pass out. You know, good job, good job, good job. That's pro tip, husbands. That's all you have to do is say good job. If that's not a metaphor, I don't know what is. You, you can and you have to. We don't just observe, we're not just passive. We pray, we groan, we go, and we act. Like Adam and Eve were meant to do, we bring order to the world. We take care of it in word and deed. And we have a taste of what life should be. That's one thing I, I love about, about Christian community and deep friendships is that they're a foretaste. Um, verse 23 says first fruits. And I was like, what is first fruits? The best image I can come up with of first fruits is uh, when Israel sends the spies into the promised land to, to spy out the land. Do we, are we going to go in or not? Um, they bring back some fruit, even though they're afraid and, and decide not to go in right then. They bring back some fruit so that God's people can taste what it's going to be like in the promised land. The Holy Spirit in Christian fellowship is a, a first fruit. It's, this isn't heaven, guys. This isn't the new earth, but sometimes we get a glimpse of it. We have the first fruits. And then perhaps the, the linchpin of this whole passage, the treasure that so many of us have held on to, is verse 28, right? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. There is so much comfort in these verses. Um, but I think more than this promise that God will take all the bad things and work them out for good in our lives somehow, even more than that, there's a significance here in the language that is saying God is working with you when you suffer. When you are groaning too deep for words, when, when you're wrecked, when you don't know what to say and the Spirit has to pray for you, the language here is not that God is working that for you. It's actually that God is working with you. It's the same word in, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians um, 6, 1, where we're called co-workers with God. As you suffer and hurt in our weak God is beside you. God is near working with you. 
God is our colleague and our partner in suffering, not just our boss sending us into it. Um, fifthly, the Lord is near. Only two things left, guys. The Lord is near. These verses are, are more than a comfort when bad things might happen to us. They're a promise of God's nearness to us when we suffer. Can I, I just want to say this morning, I've experienced in my own life a nearness from the Lord in suffering that I've never experienced any other place. Just to be honest, some days I am terrified to go back to Spain. I look for all the excuses I can find to not go back. Because I remember the fiery darts of the devil that would attack me on the field. And I, and I know so many other workers who have suffered so deeply because of their decision to follow Jesus in this way. And I know that following God cross-culturally is signing up to suffer. We experienced our lowest lows in Spain. You might be surrounded by people and still feel utterly alone. But I still, knowing all that, feel compelled to go back. And part of it is because of the nearness and the reality of God that I experienced in ministry there. That for whoever I am and the sins that I have, it is so easy for me to numb those things here. That the the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, that I am that person who, uh, Jesus says, the cares of the world can grow up and choke it out in my life. That I can, man, with the St. Louis Cardinals and a green lawn to mow and a Roth IRA, I don't really need much more. And I could spend my whole life like that. I could happily waste my whole life just planning the next vacation. I just want to testify in the sane moments, in in the moments when I really believe that the present sufferings are not worth the glory that is coming, I I am eager to hold on and to be with Jesus in that way. We've staked our lives, haven't we? all Christians on this truth, that eternity is real. That this world is not the ultimate reality. That he is coming back. It will make sense one day, guys. When, when Jesus comes back, it will make sense one day that you left friends and family for the gospel. It'll make sense one day that you went without things you wanted and gave money to church. It'll make sense one day that people didn't understand the way you lived and the hope you had, that you got laughed at because you believed in in a kingdom that was coming, it will make sense one day. It'll all be worth it. And, And I believe and I hope we will have eternity together. Anything you say no to now, any suffering you have now, God will pay you back in eternity. We will have forever together. Um, I'm going to finish up. I, I, I wish you guys knew just how much we love you. I can't communicate the love that we have 
but I am believing, and I need you to remind me, I am believing that even if I say no to these next 40 or 50 years with you, that we'll have a million after that. I want to watch your kids grow up and go to their weddings together. I want my kids to marry your kids. But if we're going to say no to that, and as others go, as other sacrifices and suffering happen on this earth, we have to remind each other that there is a glory coming. This is the last thing I want to say. God has an unending love. Let me just read this. Romans 8, 35. It's almost like Paul just like, he's out of words and he's trying to communicate it. Sorry for going long, guys, but just hang in there with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Here we have a rock-solid grip. All that stuff I've said about groaning and suffering and serving and ministering is impossible if we don't believe God loves us like this. If we think his love could come and go and we could lose it. This is the foundation we have to, to live on. This passage started with unity with Jesus and suffering, and it ends with unity with Jesus and his love, that it will not break. We cannot be separated from his love. Every other savior you make for yourself will fail you. I've tried. I've tried to work for the approval of men, get people that I respect to tell me I'm a great person, and I lost it, and it devastated me. I've tried to control my life and my kids so that they turn out to be what I want them to be. And I'm learning more and more as the years pass that I cannot do that. Every idol I've built for myself has failed me. And if you get the idols, they will let you down. They will demand more for you, from you. Jesus will never fail you. He will never fail you. So we need to look one another in the eye and say, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Jesus came first. He showed us how to live and suffer and die. That's what Christmas is about. He came first, and he's coming again. Until that day, we wait together with hope. Amen.